This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Scott Blair West. Scott is a consultant psychiatrist and the co-founder and medical director of the OCD program at the Melbourne Clinic which is the only inpatient program for OCD in Australia. Scott also works in private practice, as well as pro bono for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. He regularly provides training on anxiety disorder management and CBT to trainees, psychologists and psychiatrists. In this episode, you'll hear about the role of psychiatry and medication in the treatment of OCD, the benefits of inpatient admissions, and some of the interesting things that Scott has learned during his career, including wait for it, his belief that providing reassurance to clients isn't always a bad thing. But let's get started. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us today. We really appreciate you volunteering your time to have a chat about all things OCD and psychiatry. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's it's going to be interesting. You've been a psychiatrist for a long time. When I first met you, I was a student on placement. And the program that you direct, really all of you took me under your wing and I learned so much from that. So I'm forever grateful. But what got you into psychiatry and specifically working with people with OCD? Well, I finished my medicine in 83. When you're a student, you do a little bit of psychiatry in there. It was about eight weeks worth. It was enough to make me think, oh, that sounds interesting. I did some work at the Royal Melbourne in the One North Ward there. And so then a couple of years after that, as a junior medical officer, you get to do various things. And so I did more psychiatry and I thought that sounded good. And it just sort of seemed to suit me really. It's interesting, actually. I don't know whether there's anything genetic in it, but my daughter, our middle child, has just passed her psych exams too. So she's going to go on the same road. She has no interest in OCD though. (laughs) So the OCD stuff started at the Austin where I was training. The unit there had a lot of interest in anxiety. They had a couple of psychologists who were very closely involved. Rob Stanley was one who did a lot of CBT. And we had a small little ward that focused on anxiety and depression. I would have seen my first OCD people there. I remember following up a woman in outpatients who I was just fascinated by And then after I qualified, I thought I'll do a little bit of work in this area. And there was a research trial that was just finishing up. And my boss said, oh, we've got 15 people with OCD who need a psychiatrist. Do you want to take them over? And I thought, perfect. Within about a week, I had a bigger practice in OCD than probably just about everyone else. At that stage, it was still thought of being relatively unusual and almost rare. It wasn't. It was largely because people just didn't present because they had no real confidence that they were going to get appropriate treatment. So I just started from that. One of the colleagues I worked with at the time was really interested in his father, Peter Farnback. His father, Rod Farnback, was a, an old 
CBT from way back as a psychiatrist as well, which was, again, pretty unusual. And so after I finished at the Austin, I ended up working for them for my first few years in private practice. And so that sort of continued it on. And look, since then, it's just been, as I'm sure you know, the more people with OCD you see, the more information you get, the more sort of ideas you get about how it works. You hear things and you sort of eventually put two and two together. And I think my big advantage now is that people come in and they say, oh, you'll never have heard of this symptom before. And I say, oh, well, actually, there's been a few. I saw a woman yesterday who said, oh, you've never heard of this symptom. I'm always aware of my swallowing. I think I won't be able to swallow properly. And I said, oh, yeah, saw one last week. And, you know, other things like I've got a patient who worries that she might be in a a parallel universe, you know, a bit like the Truman Show. And then I saw someone earlier this year who had a fairly similar symptom as well. And it really helps to be able to, you're not really normalising it, but you're making it so that they don't feel quite as crazy. And in fact, one of my earliest supervisors said, one of the things you should always say at the end of every first consultation is you are not crazy. And for me, obviously, I say you're not crazy and you have an OCD problem. Mm. Yeah. I think that's such an important thing to, dare I say, provide a bit of reassurance at the end of that first session. Because these thoughts, as we know, like they can bring on such a deep sense of shame and grief as well, you know, and fear and can really hinder people from accessing treatment. So It's really nice to be able to know that validating our clients at the end of that assessment session is really, really important. Just in terms of the role of a psychiatrist in the treatment of OCD, what does that look like? Well, look, I'd like to feel I've broken the mould a bit because to be fair, I think this is probably still the case that most psychiatrists know what OCD is, but they don't have a whole lot of knowledge about the specifics. So my plan always actually was to do CBT work and to actually do the treatment and to do both parts of the treatment. I always felt that it was just ridiculous to be a pill prescriber and do nothing else. Now, I mean, a lot of my colleagues would say, oh, we do a lot of talking stuff and we do supportive therapy as well. But I've always thought you've got to do something that's actually meaningful and is actually likely to make changes and is, well, evidence-based, as we say. And so that got me into CBT and and to exposure and response prevention. And that's pretty much been what I've tried to do pretty much ever since. My view of a psychiatrist is what I want to do rather than what I I think a lot of other people do do. And I'm pretty happy with that. What do you think, Scott, is the role then of marrying together a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Do you think that there is some instances where an individual will require both a psychiatrist and a psychologist, sometimes just a psychologist, sometimes just a psychiatrist? How would someone map out and think about their treatment? A psychologist might think about when to refer to a psychiatrist, when that might be value adding. It's a really complicated question, I think. This year actually has been interesting because I've had probably more referrals this year, largely for people who are seeing psychologists like yourselves and who are going okay, but who, you know, I mean, in some cases it's purely for a medication review, but in other cases it's for a sort of a second opinion and I guess an overview of things. My friend and colleague, Chris Mogan, often asked me to see people as a one-off just to sort of have a broad view of things and take the history all again and see if we're missing anything. And it's actually one of my important things that I'm really interested in is that we should be asking for second opinions often. It's bad practice in all areas to just continue to see someone for years and years and years and years. 
and just assume that you're the only one who knows what to do when that person isn't necessarily getting better. So I'm not sure I can answer your question easily other than to say, look, there are certainly some situations where I see people and I think, frankly, I could do a better job doing the ERP than the psychologist involved. And it's not unknown for that to actually come to pass, of course. Other times I'm pretty happy just to sort of sit back and review the meds, but have a sort of a broader view of things as well and see if we're missing anything. I think there's certainly in complicated cases, there's probably a case to have someone who looks at the fine detail and someone who looks more at the broader picture. So, you know, that's how it would probably work. I would agree. And certainly in my work, I've found it really useful to have someone else in the care team, particularly with complex cases, who knows the client really intimately to really have a thinking space around the formulation, around avenues for treatment. And I've always really valued that relationship with a psychiatrist or in other instances, whether it be a speech pathologist or a pediatrician, depending on the circumstances. But I've always valued that capacity to have a broader care team, particularly around complexity. It can become a problem when you've got too many people involved. And I had a referral recently and I got a letter from the sleep specialist. He was looking at a particular issue and it said, look, you know, there's there's a major sleep issue here and perhaps we should be considering using stimulant medications. And at the end of the letter, it's copied to seven people, including me. There's just so many people involved. And that's when it starts to get potentially a little bit dicey, really. I'm not sure there's an easy way around that, to be honest. I mean, sometimes people just have incredibly complex, particularly medical issues in addition to their psychiatry stuff. So, yeah. I think it's a fine balance between having people involved where everyone serves a purpose versus then too many people involved. But as you rightly pointed out, some people just need that because there are so many different things going on for them. And that makes it complicated, I guess, for them to navigate. And also, I imagine overwhelming juggling all those appointments and commitments at the same time. But coming back to that idea of psychology and psychiatry working together, I think as a psychiatrist who is so well-versed in this area, do you generally feel a little bit more confident in knowing if the treating psychologist is a bit more well-versed in ERP and has a better understanding that you can sit back a little bit more as opposed to someone who might not? I can normally ask enough questions of the patient to know if they're actually doing something that's reasonable. In OCD, I actually like to think of ERP as E and RP. And I think one of the problems is that it often relates to complexity and severity, but it's really easy to just end up going to RP and just saying to people, oh, okay, well, look, can you just cut down your washing or do a bit less checking there? I think we all do it. We all get to situations with people who are really difficult where we just get to the point where we think, oh, do I have to find another exposure task that this person isn't going to do? Because ultimately, I really think it's the exposure stuff that is going to make the difference. And so that's often what I hear. You know, I I will hear people come in and say, oh, they've told me to not wash so much when I do something or other. What I'd like to be hearing is, well, what we'd like you to do is I want you to be deliberately touching door handles or something like that, and they're not washing. And so that always makes me wonder either whether the person's on top of ERP or whether they've tried all that stuff and the person has sort of failed to do it or has avoided it. And we've got a bigger, more complicated issue there. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it is so important to lean into the exposures? My experience, I guess, is that The more you do, the better. And I think ultimately, I read somewhere, I don't know what the reference is, but I read somewhere that the amount of Q 
cumulative ex- of anxiety that you experience during your treatment is pretty predictive of how well you're going to get. And you can only really get that by deliberately putting yourself in that situation. And there's all sorts of other issues there, of course. For a lot of people, we see this a lot in our hospital program, there's enormous sort of anticipation about doing an exposure. And sometimes because we're so pushy in the hospital, they'll do it and then they'll say, actually, that wasn't as bad as I thought. Or, you know, I was anxious, and but then my anxiety did come down. And as Celine would know, we have a review group at the end of every day where we just routinely ask people, what happened to your suds? They all say, oh, well, it was 80 and it was 60 and it was 40. People don't always give that as much sort of note as they should because that's what we're really interested in is we're sort of trying to get them to have that. I believe it's almost like a physical experience of doing exposure. So you need to have that anxiety. You need to experience it. You need to feel it when it's high. You need to feel that it's coming down. So I think that's the thing that actually makes people better. And I guess through that, they then build their confidence to know that they can cope with that anxiety and lean into it without relying on the compulsion to help them do that. Because it's almost like the compulsion has become this maladaptive coping strategy of, I need to do this in order to cope with these feelings and these thoughts. But then leaning into that anxiety and doing that exposure then shows, actually, I can cope. It's not as scary. It's not as bad as what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, well, there's also that issue of anxiety sensitivity, which is really common in a lot of these people as well. If you can prove to them that anxiety is not a catastrophe and that they can manage it, then maybe it's going to be better. I haven't done it a lot, but we certainly talked about doing pretty much almost like a panic treatment for some of these people to get them to do interceptive exposure. The most obvious one is the hyperventilation. I haven't seen a lot of panic people recently, but I've seen a lot in the past. And I always quite like the idea of doing the hyperventilation. And I always demonstrate it to them first. And they sort of go, oh, that looks really weird. And of course, you look a bit silly. I've done it in a few seminars and stuff too. And, you know, people go, oh. But it's actually, you know, quite helpful. And people will actually do it if you do it as well. So I think that's one thing, doing a bit of, you know, work on almost panic stuff can be helpful in some cases too. The other thing that's really interesting, and there's a psychologist in the States called Alec Pollard through the International OCD Foundation, and he's really into core fears. He thinks that there's actually three core fears behind, this is where everything goes to eventually, which is really important because in a sense, you've got to target an exposure so that it focuses on what they're actually really afraid of. And one of the issues with a lot of OCD is we think, why are they worrying about that? What he says is that some people worry about, you know, a particular catastrophe. My mum's going to die or something like that. But he thinks maybe more than half worry more about just being anxious or distressed forever. And he thinks some of them worry that they're going to be forever disgusted or contaminated or something like that. The others worry that they're going to be forever uncertain and doubtful about things. That's sort of where the, the exposure's got to be focused on. I think that makes a lot of sense because one of the things that we find sometimes we do exposure and people do it or they or they don't do it, but it doesn't seem to alter things much. And that's the big challenge for us is to get it better targeted so that we're actually focusing on the real fears of the person. If you were holding those core fears in mind and designing exposures, what might they look like and how might that differentiate from exposures at a more surface level? Well, I think in some cases, it's just about getting people to sit with the anxiety until it goes down and in a sense, almost prove to them, well, no, it didn't last forever. It lasted for 37 minutes or something like that. 
that obviously requires quite a bit of persistence and a bit of careful sort of choice for what exposures you're going to do. Obviously, if you give them an exposure that makes them massively anxious, then they could easily end up being anxious for hours and that is going to make it really hard. The other thing that we've done a lot of, we're doing more on more of now is thought exposure. So just getting them to actually write it all out, create, and you know we'll often start with just words, and then we'll in the end we hope to get to scripts. We had a patient recently who in our last program who did the longest script I've ever seen. The script, as you know, is a little storyline. I did this, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. And we like to get people to set the scene at the start. And he wrote nearly a page of the scene. I mean, it was fantastic. He sort of described every little thing in his environment. It was actually a great script. It was just like, you know, about 10 times longer than anyone I've ever seen in my life, which is probably not what you want. You want something that they can read within maybe a minute or two and then just sort of get those emotions in that context. That's sort of what I'm thinking about there. What role does medication have when it comes to ERP? Because Working with you for so long, I know that you're usually a try treatment first, then medicine. When do we think about actually, if it was just a mental health professional, in terms of anyone who's not a psychiatrist, really thinking about, okay, well, we've been doing ERP for a little while. There's really no shift here. Got in a second opinion, et cetera. But do we refer on for possible medication? Like, what does that look like? And when should that be happening, do you think? Well, look, the first thing to say is what we know, and that is that pills help for a proportion of people, probably about two-thirds, but they're only a partial solution. And the effect sizes in the studies would say that ERP is about twice as effective as pills. So it's a better treatment. But the two together is sometimes better again. Look, my general rule of thumb is anyone who comes in and says, I want to do ARP and I don't want to take pills. Well, maybe not every single person in that context, but 80% of those people, maybe more, I would say, okay, we'll give it a try. We'll give it three months. We'll give it six months. We'll give it some sort of set period of time. And then we'll review it after that. Most people I see are already on pills. So that's not so much the issue, but there's certainly a number of people who come in who are very keen not to take meds. The what, 10 or 20% of people who I would say you should take pills are probably the people who are severely depressed. You can't really do ERP when you're severely depressed. It's just too demanding. So yeah, if you're feeling terrible, you can't really do ERP. So, and the most common explanation there is severe depression. Sometimes if it's someone whose OCD is extremely severe and has been prolonged, then I might say the same thing. I might say, look, We can try to do it without the meds, but I just have this feeling that you're probably going to need meds and I'd be recommending that you do start them now because if you don't, then we might be here six months' time doing the same old thing. It's a bit more complicated if you started someone on treatment and they're they're going all right, but they're just not really making the progress that you'd like them to or it's just taking a long time. We've all seen people who you're thinking, oh, my God, if we keep up at this pace, we're going to get there in eight years' time or something like that. That's the sort of circumstance that I'd say they should think about it, but obviously it's got to be a voluntary thing and if they're not going to do it, then they're not going to do it. One of the things that I think I come across and end up discussing with clients a lot is actually – the other end of the spectrum when their anxiety and symptoms of panic are so high and their desire to want to reduce that with medication before embarking on ERP because they have this perception that they won't be able to cope, that they won't be able to do it well enough. They often resist or push against ERP until they find a 
solution with medication. I often find myself in that space. I'd love your opinion on that. Look, there are some people who, this is going to sound a bit mean, but there are some people who want an easier option. And and I'm sure you've seen people, and I've certainly seen people who you say, okay, we'll work on the pills. And then they take the pills and they feel a bit better. They either come back and say, oh, I'm actually pretty good now. And you think, well, no, actually, you're not that good. You've got a lot more work to do. And they say, oh, yeah, no, but I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. You know, I'll see you in three months' time. And I'm thinking, oh, you're about, you know, 50% or 60% of where I'd like you to be. So that's going to happen. Sometimes when people are depressed or anxious because of their OCD, then I'll often say to them, look, we can fill you up with pills here if you want to. But actually, if you do the EIP, and I think you can do it, and that's obviously the key sort of assessment there, can they do it? If they can do it, then depression related to their OCD, if we get their OCD better, their mood's going to lift substantially anyway. And we see this a lot in the hospital program. People come in feeling morose and three weeks is not long enough to fix them, but they often go home feeling quite a lot brighter and their mood's lifted even though we haven't altered their meds at all. It's a sense of hope, isn't it? as well as a sense of building hope in their own competence to know that they can cope, which is always there. It's just that I think OCD does such a good job of making our clients doubt their own world, that they even start to doubt their own judgment, their own ability, their own capability and all that kind of stuff. And building that confidence through doing ERP, I think does a world of wonders for people's mood and bring in that sense of hope again. So speaking of inpatient admissions, what would it entail to get a referral going for our listeners that are thinking about clients that they might be working with? A, what does it involve to get a referral going? But does a person need to be at a certain level of intensity or have to be unwell to a certain level before they can do the program or can anyone do it? Sort of yes and yes. Anyone can do it. Certainly people at the more severe end of the spectrum would say, look, that's fine. We're we're very happy to take you. People sort of mild to moderate. In some cases, we would say you need treatment, but there's no reason you have to do it in this setting initially. You really should be working with a good CBT therapist, ERP person as an outpatient and at least try to do some of that work. So, I mean, we still take in people who basically just been diagnosed and haven't really had any treatment, but there are certainly some situations where we'd say, well, look, you could come in, but you could equally do this work with a good therapist externally. So yeah, there's a lot of variation there. I mean, essentially we're we're happy to, to see anyone who's got a form of OCD that impacts their functioning significantly and certainly anyone who's been struggling to get better with treatment. And referral wise... Is it just a simple GP referral? Like what does that look like? The referrals to the Melbourne Clinic, which is where the program is run, can be just through a GP or a psychiatrist. The only issue is that they need to have a psychiatrist looking after them in the hospital. I mean, obviously, if they have someone connected to the hospital already, that streamlines it a little bit, but we'll get there eventually. I mean, as you know, Celine, we've in past years, not really in the last year and a half, we'd had a lot of people come down from interstate who'd really just been referred by, often by their psychiatrists in Brisbane, Sydney, et cetera, and taken on by, you know, one of the psychiatrists at the hospital to look after and basically given to our program to work on over that time. We try not to have really any particular barriers. There are occasions where we want to sort of assess people a little bit more before we pop them into the program. In terms of the inpatient program, How does it differ from an outpatient program? I mean, aside from residents, in terms of the application of ERP, 
and the treatment while you're in there. Is it just about intensity of the program? Are there nuances to the way you might apply ERP inpatient versus as an outpatient? It's largely about intensity. The other big advantage we have, and everyone who works as an outpatient knows that there's potentially an issue if you see someone now, your next appointment's going to be two weeks down the track. I mean, you can be lucky and, and or the person can be very diligent and they can work on their EIP the whole way through and they come back in two weeks and you say, fantastic, we'll move on to the next thing. Or equally, you can get derailed on day two. They have a big incidental exposure, something happens in the family and people come in two weeks later and you say, how'd you go with your exposure? And you said, oh, I couldn't do any of it because, you know, my mum got sick or something like that. Now, obviously, mums could get sick when people are in hospital, but it doesn't take so much to derail people where they're an outpatient. So part of it is intensity and part of it is that issue of us being able to sort of set a task every single day and be able to adjust and adapt really quickly if we need to. The other thing is we can push it a little bit more when we know that we're going to see the patient the next day. Although what we realised is that a few years ago, probably while Celine was there actually, was that we couldn't really afford to keep pushing it right to the last day. If we were sort of ramping it up and getting people to do harder and harder things and then on the day before they left or the day they left, they, they did the toughest exposure that they could possibly do, then we had so many people who were very diligent and did it, but then they would go home and they would just fall in a huge hole because it was just too big a sort of step down. And so we've sort of, the last several years, we've been trying to faded a bit. We try to peak maybe around about the end of the second week or just the start of the third and then calm it a little bit and Celine will know. But our last week is designed as much as we can to get people adapted to going home. In non-COVID years, people could go out on leave and if people lived in Melbourne, we could get them to go home and do some exposure at home, come back. It's probably partly why we're doing more imaginal exposure and more thought exposure as well. And look, that's the other thing is that when they're in the hospital, we've got more time. To, so they present us, we say, we'd like you to draw up a hierarchy and they draw one up. Now, everyone who's ever had a patient draw a hierarchy up knows sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not good. They need to be reviewed. And so it's a lot easier if we're reviewing it the next day than if we're reviewing it the next week or two weeks later. Actually, there is one other issue that you don't get from an outpatient program, and that is being in a program with seven other people. And that's probably a little bit underestimated. I think some groups are sensational and they really bond and they get on together well and they really help each other and often keep in touch afterwards. Sometimes people can be a little bit too diligent, but sometimes it's actually really helpful. And so that's good too. I think hearing it from your peers can be so much more powerful than hearing it from the specialists. Virtually everyone who goes into our program for the first time, if you ask them and you say, Do you, have you ever met anyone else with OCD? They'll say no. Or they'll say, they might say yes, but, you know, because they're, someone in their family has OCD. It's just a huge change for them. You know, they're sitting in a room and there's seven other people there and they've all got OCD. It's all a bit different. So it's not exactly the same as theirs. And that actually helps a bit too, because it sort of reinforces the idea of the CBT model that we use, that it's not exactly the same content, but the form of it is pretty similar. It's so powerful. Tori and I, off the back of a suggestion of one of her clients she was working with individually, actually, just this year started a group program for teenagers with OCD. And we did three this year quite successfully because like there's nothing for teens. And the biggest thing we think 
just observing them was they just learned so much from each other, which is exactly what you're describing. And none of them had ever seen or heard anyone, like you said, unless it was a family member with OCD. And it was just so empowering for them. And also reassuring too, when they would often talk about their friends going, oh, I'm so OCD, like, you know, and then wanting to feel like they want to punch their friends in the face. But to actually get into a group with six or seven other people, other teenagers who are going through very similar things, dealing with the same family issues as well. And, you know, managing OCD in school and all that kind of stuff. It's just so uplifting. So I think a group program can be really, really powerful. We're actually making progress in explaining OCD more generally to the world and to people. We're way advanced of where we were 20, 30 years ago, but we've still got a hell of a long way to go. What is something you know now that you didn't know back then that you use to this day? I have to admit, I was pretty dogmatic about compulsions, you know, and I think what I've come to realise is, and, and this is actually the most enjoyable parts of my work in my practice anyway, is seeing people 10 years, 20 years down the track who are really essentially functioning normally. These are people who I saw and who often were really sick, you know, many years ago, but who've recovered. They still have some symptoms and they still do a few little compulsions here and there. And I figure, well, they're the experts in many ways. So that's really where we should be at. We can't expect people to be perfect. I mean, I try and say that all the time with people doing their ERP. If you stuff it up, it's not the end of the world. Everyone stuffs things up and they need to do that sometimes in order to get good at things. And so if you do a little ritual here and there, let's be okay with that. Maybe even a little bit of reassurance occasionally is okay. (laughs) It's okay to break the rules sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think that we can't be too rigid. I mean, some people Mm. need information. You might think, well, everyone knows about the realities of HIV infection, but not everyone does. And some people need to be told, well, look, you aren't going to get HIV from sitting on a toilet seat or from shaking someone's hand or from touching the door handle. And then you might need to explain a little bit of physiology and the actual pathology of of the virus and those sort of things. I think it's going to be shown in time that very few people got COVID from touching stuff. And so we are going to have an epidemic of hand washing and and wiping and sanitising now for probably the next 10 years, maybe, maybe longer. I'll probably be retired by then. You guys will have to deal with that. (laughs) (laughs) You can pass the torch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what's supposed to happen as you get older, you're supposed to become a bit more mellow and sort of understand different aspects of things a little bit better and, and be a bit wiser about things and a bit less black and white. So that's one thing. There's a question we've been asking a lot of our guests just to normalize this is we all know that in working with OCD, we try and normalize intrusive thoughts as much as possible. So we've been asking our guests to volunteer some of their intrusive thoughts, if you are willing, with our listeners so that we then end up having like this huge variation and big list of different types that people experience. Would you be willing to share some of your ones? Yeah, sure. The one that I remember the best is, this is a while ago, I used to work really late on, on one night and I would finish and I'd have to lock the place up and I was dead tired and I hadn't eaten and, and I was sort of walking out the door and I was doing things automatically and I'd turn all the lights off, put the alarm on, lock the door, walk out to my car and then I'd think, oh, did I put the alarm on? Did I lock the door? And, and I was 99% sure I had 
But of course, Celine, I had to do the right thing. I had to get in my car and drive away. Even if the practice was unlocked, that's an OCD-ish thing. Look, the other thing that I used to have enormous difficulties with public speaking, but what I learned eventually was that in some ways, it doesn't matter how much preparation you do, you can't guarantee that you're going to have a good performance. So I started realizing, well, look, let's not spend too much time preparing for stuff. If it's bad, then it's bad. If it, But mostly it'll be good. And generally that's the way it is. So social anxiety is obviously not OCD, but it's very closely associated for a lot of people. Most definitely. I think, I mean, that's something I can relate to in terms of public speaking. I'm a freezer. So my fight, flight, freeze response is freezing. I remember as a young child having to do like this Mother's Day poem thing as part of school and being so good at practicing it at home and like even like acting things out and all that sort of stuff. And then when it was my turn to go solo on the stage, I was at, I confidently walked up to the microphone and then I went to open my mouth and nothing came out. And I remember just being frozen. Yeah. And then after about a few minutes, I saw my mum walking down the the little walkway and like I could feel tears streaming down my face and she just picked me up off the stage. And then from then on, it was just such a thing I had to work on to then force myself to do debating in high school and Toastmasters and all that kind of stuff to really kind of sit with that fear of what would people think or what if I did it wrong or what if it's not good enough and have all these different thoughts pop in? It can be really intense. It can be pretty debilitating and I haven't told many people and and here I am talking to your podcast about it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know? (laughs) I'll probably edit it out anyway. But uh, anyway. No, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that and for all your wonderful insights today. It's been wonderful getting your insights into the world of psychiatry and OCD and hearing all of the nuance of your work and the way that you apply ERP. Thank you truly for your time. No, it's been fun. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. <laughs>